You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's a warm night in Dawson City, an historic mining town in the Yukon Territory, where the Klondike and the Yukon Rivers meet. It is the quintessential gold rush town. It served as the main staging point for thousands of hopeful miners back in the 1890s and was home to roughly 17,000 souls, making it the biggest city west of Winnipeg and north of San Francisco. Today, its population is about one-tenth that number, but holding. Tourism continues to grow, and the strong price of gold still lures some prospectors to the nearby claims. Dawson is very much rooted in the past, and in the parts of our imaginations that light up when we think about the abstract ideas of the North. Legendary Canadian writer Pierre Burton grew up there. Jack London lived there for a time, and the city is the key setting of his most famous book, The Call of the Wild. And Robert Service, the beloved Canadian poet, once worked there as a bank teller, a job where his daily interactions would provide surefire inspiration. Seventeen of the buildings in Dawson City are protected. The rest are more modern creations, but built by law in that classic Victorian style with large windows, gabled roofs, and false facades. The roads are unpaved, so they're always either muddy or dusty, and the sidewalks are made of wood. It's a strange sensation walking the street, looking down the road at the untouched wilderness, admiring the hand-painted signs, the weather-beaten buildings, and the paddle-wheeler rocking in its berth. It can almost feel like you've been transported back in time, until you watch three people take a selfie in front of the run-down facade of the Floradora Hotel, then hop into a tour bus and head for the highway. You continue your walk, turning at the general store and continuing east, following the sound of ragtime music being banged out on an old piano. You come to the corner of Queen Street and 2nd Avenue and stop. In this tiny little town, a significant number of people are standing in a line just outside the bright red downtown hotel. You cross the street and look inside. You find the piano player, as well as a few dozen people talking, laughing, and taking photos. You see about three empty tables. The line, you learn, isn't for admission. It's for one drink in particular, the specialty of the house. You push open the two swinging saloon doors and sit down. The place is elegantly appointed with tufted red velvet booths, gold and crimson wallpaper, mounted antlers, and a gleaming, if well-loved, hardwood bar. Most eyes in the room are on a strange-looking man in the corner, wearing a navy shirt, khaki vest, and a crumpled captain's hat. On the table in front of him are two coasters, a leather-bound logbook, a plastic pitcher labeled Tips, and a silver platter covered in rock salt. On top of the salt sits something less easy to identify. It's wrinkled and dark brown, similar to a date or an inedible chunk of jerky. Listening to the chatter and reading the signs on the wall, you soon realize that it's not a date. It is, in fact, a preserved, severed human toe. One by one, the people in line sit down at his table and watch wide-eyed as he drops the toe into their drink. After a moment or two of hesitation, they raise their glass and drink their shot, while the man in the captain's hat watches carefully to ensure the toe hits their lips. 
After that, he shakes their hand, records their name in his book, passes them a certificate, and calls over the next customer. For the next hour and a half, you watch, bewildered and bemused, as each person participates in this strange little ritual. It's always fun to see them react to the toe. Some cover their mouth in terror. Some turn green. Some get a stony look of determination. And some just laugh. But all who stand in line complete the challenge and leave the bar with their certificate and a good story to share back home. As the night wears on and things wind down, you spot an old-timer near the bar, nursing a double dose of whiskey. You make your way over, introduce yourself, and ask about the toe. There's more than one, he says. He tells you that some came from a former British Royal Marine who was stricken with frostbite during a winter race. Five were donated by a man from Whitehorse who had to have a cancerous leg removed. Five more came from a miner who had a run-in with a bulldozer. And another came from an Albertan woman with an inoperable corn. One of the most famous toes came from a man from Whitehorse, or was it Virginia, who decided to mow his lawn one summer's day while wearing open-toed sandals. But it doesn't really matter where the toes come from. It's where they're going that's important. Specifically, in your drink, down the side of your glass, and against your lips. How did this all start, you wonder? It must be quite the story. He laughs and nods. It is quite the legend. He pauses as he holds his drink up to the light and peers into the golden liquid which he swirls in the glass. He takes a long sip of whiskey, clears his throat, and begins. The old man promises a legend. He gives you three. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. This is the final episode of Season 3. And if you've been listening long enough, you know that I like to use these last episodes to explore some of the more offbeat legends of Canada. So tonight, we're heading back up north to the Yukon to learn all about a rather curious cocktail. After this, the show will go dark as I take a break and begin the research for Season 4. So I want to quickly say another heartfelt thank you to everyone who's listening, everyone who has written in, and the few of you who have lent your support this season. It really means a lot. Now, Canada can be a bit of a quirky country, and it's no secret that we're rather fond of alcohol, tall tales, and odd ingredients. Put them all together, and you're probably going to have a memorable time. In Quebec, for example, the uniquely sweet French-Canadian beverage known as caribou is said to have once been composed of whiskey and caribou blood. Today, the popular winter drink can either be a cocktail made with brandy, sherry, and port, or a mulled wine sweetened with maple syrup. No blood allowed. In Newfoundland, you can get screeched in, a ceremony where tourists can become honorary Newfoundlanders by repeating a few words, kissing a dead cod, and taking a shot of rum. But the Yukon Territory might just have them both beat with an iconic traditional drink of their own, served with a dried, severed human toe. They call it the Sour Toe Cocktail, and this is its story. 
A warning, the following story is gross. There's no way around it. It's the story of a severed human toe that served in a drink. So if you're the squeamish type, you might want to sit this one out. Part 1. The Legend of the Toe Folks in the Yukon have always been the type to sniff out a good opportunity. That is, of course, what brought about 100,000 hopeful dreamers stampeding up the Chilkoot Trail during the Klondike Gold Rush in the late 1890s. Twenty years later, long after most of the gold had been picked clean, a different kind of rush occurred, though it was even shorter-lived. It began in 1917, when the people of Alaska decided that they would go dry. Bone dry, as the law was called, which would ban the sale of all alcohol starting on New Year's Day in 1918. The referendum started a fire sale, as saloons across the territory began to sell off their surplus of inventory and supplies at bottom-of-the-barrel prices. The prohibition was voted in by a margin of two to one, which meant that a third of the population likely ran to their nearest saloon to drown their sorrows at a hefty discount. But if that particular saloon was anywhere near the Yukon River, the grieving Alaskans would have found themselves competing with a crowd of thirsty and enterprising Canadians. Legend has it that, once news of the ban and subsequent sales reached the good citizens of Whitehorse and Dawson City, a stampede of sternwheelers flooded the river and raced west across the border to relieve the Alaskans of their liquor. It was the aptly named Canadian that was the first to come blazing down the Yukon, smokestack fuming wheel churning the water to mud, as the 450-ton ship skidded to a stop outside Tanana, Alaska, and both passengers and crew jumped ashore and hurried to the taverns. Before the Americans knew what hit them, the sternwheeler was sitting low in the water, laden with liberated copper stills and crates and barrels full of various spirits, from the rottenest of rot-gut gin to top-shelf American bourbon and Peruvian pisco, shipped in from the swanky bars of San Francisco. Thus began one of the greatest parties that the North had ever seen as the Canadian turned about and puffed its way home. Those who had enough self-control to guard their goods rather than consume them would turn a tidy profit when the ship arrived triumphantly beleaguered and besotted on the muddy bank of Dawson City. The long shadow of prohibition would fall on the Yukon just one year later as part of a national war measure, but it wouldn't linger long. While Alaskans would have to wait until 1933 to legally imbibe beneath the midnight sun, the Yukon Territory dove back into the barrel in 1920. The swiftness of the repeal was beaten only by Quebec, which struck down the law almost immediately. It is during those delicate years of the 1920s, after the Yukon repealed Prohibition but Alaska remained dry, that our story truly begins. Louis Likens was, by all accounts, an enterprising man. Like many of his fellow Yukoners, Louis was a jack-of-all-trades who dabbled in hunting, trapping, and mining. But his talent his passion, lay in the distillation of spirits of a questionable nature, and their clandestine transportation across the frozen frontier to slake the parched throats of his northern brothers and sisters who found themselves on the dry side of the border. 
from a rickety snowbound cabin on Miller Creek, just 10 kilometers east of the U.S. border, Louis would run his operation distilling and bottling moonshine, then smuggle his illicit cargo under the long, dark nights of winter. It was a lucrative business that yielded a far greater payout than any gold he might find in his pan, but it came at a far greater risk as well. The authorities didn't appreciate Louis' efforts, and both the U.S. Marshals and the newly established Royal Canadian Mounted Police would routinely patrol the border in an attempt to catch the criminal, resulting in more than a few close calls. The most memorable occurred one night in early March, somewhere near Circle City, Alaska. An early thaw had begun, and days of rain had swept along the Yukon River and turned the snow to slop. Louis was finishing one of his last runs of the season, dropping off a shipment of shine, when a U.S. Marshal suddenly appeared on the horizon and rushed toward him. Louis dropped his cargo and ran. The snow was wet and heavy. It clung to his clothes and dragged him down, almost pulling him off his feet as he lumbered toward the trees where his dog sled lay hidden in the bush. He came to a creek, a narrow, sunken strip in the snow, and knew that he was just steps from escaping. He looked back for a moment to see where the marshal might be and heard a gut-wrenching crack when his foot hit the creek, followed by a metallic twang like the sound of a cable snapping as the ice gave way and his boot plunged into the frigid water. A hundred thousand knives stabbed at his leg as he stumbled across the creek, frozen rocks embedded in shards of ice clinging to his leg, but there was no time to stop. He leapt to the sled, called out to his dogs, and they shot across the open snow, one last crate full of moonshine rattling with each bump on the trail. Louis was no stranger to the cold and the effects it can have on the human body. So when that pins and needles feeling pushed through his toes and was followed by a dull ache, he knew he was in trouble. But the marshal was right behind him. He could hear the dogs, and the shimmering emerald pillars of the northern lights were so bright that he could see his shadow. He couldn't hide. He could only run. Louis didn't look back until the light of his cabin was on the horizon, and even then he overshot it just in case the marshal proved to be overzealous. He only returned home when he was confident that the lawman had given up the chase, and by then his foot was entirely numb. He didn't have to see it or feel it to know what was coming next. Louis picked up the last crate of liquor and hobbled inside, where he sat on a wooden chair and gingerly tugged at his boot and then his sock. The flesh of his big toe was hard and icy to the touch. The rest of his foot was bright red from the cold, but his toe was a sickly, blotchy blue and white. It was undeniable. The plunge in the icy creek and the frigid ride home had struck his toe with a bad case of frostbite. As it thawed by the fire, it would turn pink, then red, then finally black, as if he had dipped it wet into the ashes of the fire. Gangrene was a certainty, and with no doctor nearby, it was up to him to administer any necessary medical treatment. So he grabbed his rifle. He stacked up a piece of firewood, pulled a reused Grimsby pickle jar from the crate, and took a few generous swigs of moonshine. He placed a wooden spoon between his teeth and braced himself. Louis's toe went flying with one clean shot from the old Winchester, and the wound was cauterized with a red-hot hunting knife that he had shoved into the fire. 
The crisis had been averted, and he tried to look on the bright side of things. He had an entire crate of alcohol to help him weather the winter storms until he could get back on his feet, and when that time came, his boot would feel just a little more roomy. There was only one problem, really. What should he do with the toe? He couldn't bury it, the ground was too frozen, and a crusty, rotting toe isn't something you want lying around inside your cabin. And really, to be honest, Louis wasn't ready to just throw it in the fire. He was still rather fond of the thing, so he tossed it in the pickle jar containing the remaining moonshine, screwed the lid on tight, and placed it on his mantle. Over the long, lonely winter months, when literally anything can be considered company, Louis became increasingly attached to the detached toe. And when the ground thawed and summer came, he chose to hang on to his pet toe for just a little longer. So there it sat on the mantle for five years, 25 years, 45 years, until the summer of 1969. That summer was special, because that was the year when humankind finally set foot on the moon. It was also the summer when the legendary Woodstock Festival was held in Bethel, New York. And it was the summer when, about 66 kilometers west of Dawson City, Louis Lycan's big toe would finally find a new owner. Part 2. Captain River Rat It was a man named Dick Stevenson, together with his then-wife, prospector Yukon Lou, who stumbled upon it decades later when they purchased Louis's cabin while checking mineral deposits in the area. The door's ancient hinges squealed in protest when they first entered the cabin. Sunlight poured across the dusty floor, and there... Twinkling on the mantel, surrounded by a ring of dust, sat the pickle jar. The liquor had long since evaporated, but the big toe was still there. Caramel brown in color, gnarled, bent at the knuckle, with a milky white nail still attached. Dick knew that something like that must have a story. So he asked around and heard all about the toe-tingling ordeal from Louis's brother, Otto. So is the legend true? Well, Dick thought so. The details have changed a bit here and there. Sometimes Louis is a rum runner, other times he's a simple trapper. Sometimes he's chased by the authorities, other times he's caught in a blizzard and accidentally steps in an overflow while tending to his dogs. The official story on the Dawson City website says that Otto cleaved the gangrenous toe from Louis's foot with a woodcutting axe. But some of the earliest interviews with Dick tell us that Louis did it himself with a 3030 Winchester. That seems to be one of the oldest versions of the tale, and I thought the mental image of a guy shooting off his toe with a rifle fit the unbelievable nature of the story, so I kept that method in my version. But these are all just minor details that gild a rather peculiar lily. Though his wife was out searching for gold, Dick had found a different kind of treasure entirely. A relic of the Yukon, and a testament to the spirit of northern enterprise, in the form of a preserved human toe. He knew he had to keep it, you just don't throw something like that away, but he was at a loss for what exactly he should do with it. The answer came years later in a Dawson City saloon. In a lot of ways, Dick Stevenson was sort of a kindred spirit to Louis. Originally from New Brunswick, he had come to the Yukon in 1956, 
searching for the natural beauty and the freedom promised by the northern frontier. He too was a jack-of-all-trades, working as a logger in New Brunswick, a cowboy in Alberta, and a miner and airframe technician in BC. After a brief stay in prison, apparently for selling Canadian Forces parachutes, he came north, first working as a predator control officer and then as a fisheries guardian, before he was fired for running tours on the government's gas money. The people of Dawson called him the River Rat, after he purchased his own boat to serve tourists. He looked the part, too. Sharp, arched eyebrows, pointed nose, a few whiskers here and there. He was rail-thin, with a mess of inky blue tattoos crawling up his arms. And his small eyes seemed ever-squinting, across the water, the snow, or whenever he smiled, which was often, frequently in the form of a mischievous grin. In 1971, he finally got his captain's papers, making him one of the last few licensed captains on the Yukon River. He began signing all of his correspondence as Captain Dick Stevenson, River Rat, Dawson City, YT. The captain was also an enterprising man, who seemed full of ideas about how to improve Yukon tourism and make a little cash for good measure. There was his tour boat, of course, the 60-passenger vessel Yukon Lou, named after his wife, which ran on diesel but featured a tiny paddle wheel on the stern that was mostly for show. He had dreams to take his smaller boat, the Klondike Kate, down the Mississippi River to New Orleans for Mardi Gras, ideally with the funding of the Yukon Tourism Board. Captain Dick was also the man behind admirable schemes like his Wild Rocks, his answer to Pet Rocks, the short-lived but popular toy fad of 1975. As the name suggests, the captain's rocks, sourced from a Klondike gold claim, were a little undomesticated. According to the instructions penned by the captain himself, a proud Wild Rock owner should, quote, carry it into rough bars, pour scotch on the rock, and feed it two pet rocks daily, end quote. There was also the Miss Nude Yukon pageant, held one foggy morning on the shores of so-called Pleasure Island, just upriver of Dawson. He had hoped to start a brand new annual event that would sell tickets and attract the attention of Playboy magazine. Instead, only three women participated and just one ticket was sold. After Miss Nude Yukon failed to take off, Captain Dick might have felt frustrated that none of his ideas seemed to pan out. He didn't know it at the time, but it would be one of his earliest and craziest schemes that would ultimately endure. Part 3. A Drink with a Kick It was in the Sluice Box Lounge at Dawson City's El Dorado Hotel on August 17, 1973, the 75th anniversary of Discovery Day when Yukon Gold was first discovered and the Klondike Gold Rush began. Captain Dick was sitting around with a few reporter friends, casually brainstorming ideas for how they could celebrate the momentous occasion. About ten drinks in, the idea hit him like a bolt of lightning. A special cocktail inspired by and dedicated to all the miners and all the dreamers who made the Yukon what it was. The drink would have to be reminiscent of Dawson City in her prime, when she was known as the Paris of the North. Extravagant, yet humble, and a little eccentric. The extravagance would come from an entire bottle of imported champagne. The humility would be expressed in the drinkware, 
a simple beer glass filled right to the brim. The finishing touch would be guaranteed not to be found anywhere else in the world. The remains of Louis Lycan's wrinkled, dehydrated toe dropped into the drink with a pair of silver tongs. It would be known as the Yukon Sour Toe Cocktail, a pun on the nickname Sourdough, which was given to the miners of the California and then Klondike Gold Rush who relied on sourdough bread as the main staple of their diet. It was late in the evening and toward the end of a long drinking session, so naturally everyone thought it was a fantastic idea, but one that they quickly forgot. Except the captain. Soon he was back at the lounge, toe in hand, inviting all brave souls to take the sour toe challenge. The rules were simple. 1. No blindfolds or closing of the eyes allowed. You must keep your eye on the toe as it's dropped into your drink. 2. The glass must be filled to the brim, and there must be no more than half an inch of champagne left when you're done. 3. You must stand at the north end of the bar, in the light, and in full view of your fellow patrons. 4. The toe must touch your lips. And 5. You must not swallow the toe. If you were successful, you'd get a pat on the back, a hearty handshake, and be declared an honorary member of the Exalted Order of the Yukon Sour Toe. Years later, Captain Dick admitted that he had to psych himself into imbibing his curious creation. Before heading to the bar, he first bathed the toe in the cheapest vodka he could find, reasoning that it would likely kill whatever bacteria might be growing on the rubbery surface. He opened a bottle of wine, sat in his backyard, and forced himself to drink about seven toe-tainted glasses until he was confident he could do it with ease in front of a skeptical audience. He also expressed his bewilderment at how the drink had become a well-known northern oddity that people actually sought out. Only three people reportedly accepted his first challenge. After four years, that number had grown to a little over 100. But the drink was so odd, and its creator was such a character, that newspapers across the country simply couldn't resist the story. And little by little, as the legend of the Sour Toe Cocktail Club grew, so too did its membership. The captain had special certificates made to welcome people to the club. It also helped that the captain was flexible in his rules. One older challenger told him that, while she was more than happy to drink around a severed toe, she just couldn't stomach an entire beer glass full of champagne. So he changed the rules. The sour toe would now be your drink of choice, plus one legendary garnish. The captain's suggestion was a stiff shot of Yukon Jack, a honey liqueur, but it didn't have to be alcohol. Water, milk, juice, ginger ale, preferably Canada Dry, were all valid choices. He even tossed the toe in a hot bowl of soup, though that one earned him a visit from the Vancouver Health Authority. And yes, I said Vancouver, BC, because, of course, Captain Dick liked to travel with the toe, visiting numerous spots in the Yukon as well as Edmonton and Vancouver. From the deepest of dive bars to the swankiest lounges of luxury hotels, and he noticed something interesting. He expected that he'd have more success at the rougher places like biker bars and strip clubs, but few patrons seemed to have the nerve to answer his challenge. He told one reporter, quote, I've been in Hell's Angels bars and just about bombed out. They won't touch it. The better class of bar you go to, 
the more who are willing to try it, end quote. Now, Captain Dick might have struck out with the Hells Angels, but he hit a home run with everyone else. Remember I said earlier that just over 100 people had joined the club by 1977? Well, three years later, the membership roster was bursting with over 700 names, and it was quickly becoming famous, so much so that it had its own routine. When not in use, the toe was kept in a tobacco box full of salt. When at the bar, it spent the night in bottom-shelf vodka and was cleaned with a toothbrush dipped in wood alcohol between drinks. Once the toe touched your lips, you were given a hearty handshake and a certificate, appropriately printed on goldenrod paper, that declared the following. In recognition that your name, in the presence of witnesses, drank an authentic sour toe cocktail, thereby following in the wayward, even staggering footsteps of Captain River Rat, has proven to be a person capable of almost anything and is therefore fully entitled to bear this certificate with such rights and privileges as may at any drunken moment be decided upon. I have hereunto set my hand, or my seal, or made my mark, or whatever I was capable of at the time. Signed, Captain Dick Stevenson, Captain River Rat, Yukon River Tours. Things were going so well, and then tragedy struck. In the summer of 1980, one man, a miner originally from Ladner, B.C., accidentally swallowed the toe. He was downing his 13th classic sour toe, the beer glass full of champagne, when he leaned too far back and fell to the floor. Some say he already had the toe in his mouth. Others maintain it flew in while he cried out in alarm. Either way, once his back hit that hardwood floor, that was it. Over half a century after it was amputated, having thrilled and disgusted hundreds of curious people, Louis Lycan's toe was no more. The entire bar fell silent, and then there were whispers of disbelief and peals of nervous laughter. The captain was shocked but accepting of this honest mistake, and a desperate search was now on for the next sour toe. It was a cold, bleak, toeless winter that year in the Yukon, because it took about six long months for one to finally be found, just recently detached from the foot of a woman in Alberta. Unfortunately, that one was lost during hotel renovations in 1982, and it's been a roller coaster ride of ups and downs ever since. Toe after toe was accidentally swallowed, lost, stolen, or simply used to the point of disintegration but a replacement would always come in within the next 12 months or so. Though each loss was a tragedy, it did help with publicity. When people see a headline like, quote, Sour Toe Drink Has Barflies in a Pickle, end quote, well, they stop to read the article. There are three iconic stories about a time the toe was stolen, and each time the odd nature of the story and the outrage it inspired helped attract the attention and pique the interest of other future club members. The first time was in 1983, when the Royal Canadian Regiment was in town. According to Captain Dick, he welcomed them into the bar one discovery day, took out a case of rum, and drank them all under the table. Yet somehow, in all of that confusion, one anonymous, likely inebriated soldier secretly snatched the toe and took it with him back to Ontario. Captain Dick pointed the finger at the Canadian Army and accused one of its soldiers of theft. 
They shot back that they believed Captain Dick had orchestrated the entire thing, but promised to find the tow and quickly ship it back. They made good on their word. The second theft occurred three years later in 1986, when someone slipped the tow from its salt box while it was being served in Watson Lake, Yukon. The RCMP investigated for two weeks, but found nothing. The brazen theft was reported in newspapers throughout the western provinces, and on the CBC TV show Midday. From there, word spread quickly, and a few hot tips came in by telephone. The tow had been spotted that winter in a bar in Texas, and then later in bars in Memphis and Nashville, Tennessee. Dick matched the name of the suspect to a name on the cocktail club roster, and wouldn't you know it, it had been added that fateful day in Watson Lake. He knew he had his man. Apparently, a big game hunter from Texas had visited the Yukon, joined the Sour Toe Cocktail Club, and stolen the tow. The Texan was now using it in an attempt to start his own club, and he refused to give it back. Until the RCMP supposedly took over and threatened to charge the man with transporting human remains across an international border. The tow was then promptly returned, and the police closed the case. The third theft was just a few years ago. In 2017, a Quebec man allegedly convinced the bartender to serve the sour toe cocktail outside of the official hours, known as tow time, then waited until her back was turned, plucked it from the glass, and ran away. The RCMP were called again, and thankfully, the tow was returned just three days later with a letter of apology. No charges were laid. Finally, I would be remiss if I didn't mention what is arguably the darkest time for the sour toe. A night in the summer of 2013 when a cocky American from Louisiana, sporting a scraggly mullet, strolled into a bar in Dawson City and ordered a sour toe cocktail. Standing there in the saloon, surrounded by dozens of people, including one of Captain Dick's successors, tow captain Terry Lee, he smiled and listened to the ceremonial patter took the drink from the table, swirled it around, and, in one enormous gulp, threw his head back and swallowed the entire thing, toe and all. Toe Captain Terry was mortified, but his surprise turned to anger when he realized that the cannibal, as he would come to call the man, had done it on purpose. The American pulled $500 from his wallet, the fine for swallowing a toe, slapped it on the table, and walked away then proceeded to brag to his fellow patrons by the door. Many in Dawson were livid. To steal the tow was one thing, at least the tow wasn't destroyed, and those who had previously swallowed the tow had done so by accident. They were drunk or tricked or usually both, and they were always apologetic. But this guy had planned it. He had taken human remains, which, as far as anyone knew, had been legally sourced from a consenting adult with the intention of being used in a time-honored tradition, and willfully consumed it. He took a beautiful, communal ceremony and made it all about him, putting the entire thing in jeopardy and robbing the donor, whoever they were, of what could have been many more years of bragging rights. Now, to his credit, the toe swallower did repent and returned to Dawson City three years later to make amends. He wrote his apology in the form of a poem, which he read before a live audience. 
He then presented the hotel with an altered living will, promising to donate his big toe to the club after his death, along with a pair of clippers purchased specifically for the post-mortem amputation. Terry, still angered by the man's audacity, didn't seem moved by the gesture. The fine for swallowing the toe has now been raised to $2,500 in the hope that such a hefty fine will deter potential copycats. Thankfully, worrying about the toe supply seems to be a thing of the past. Year after year, a steady stream of people and toes have come into Dawson City and, thanks to all the donations, sometimes just one toe, sometimes an entire foot's worth, the legendary cocktail has been served uninterrupted since 1989. Now more than ever, folks line up outside during the summer months just for a chance to try the infamous drink. There is no age limit for members. According to one article from 1992, the oldest inductee was 89. The youngest was just 14 months. They come from all walks of life. Gold miners, doctors, politicians, retirees, children, and from all across the globe, from places like Malaysia and Romania. Some members of the club aren't even human. A parrot named Waldo apparently joined in 1991 after he enjoyed a white Russian while sitting atop Captain Dick's shoulder. Last year, in July of 2022, the club hit a milestone when the 100,000th Sour Toe Cocktail was served to Yukon Premier Sandy Silver. This year, 2023, marks another important event, the 50th anniversary of its invention. In half a century, the Sour Toe Cocktail has become, for many, one of the most iconic things to do in the Yukon. Whether you are a senior on a bus tour, a father and son on a road trip of life lessons, a biker, a hiker, or a would-be miner, one of the best ways to test your mettle is to touch your lips to that wet, shiny black toe. Part 4. A Toe in Immortality Sadly, Captain Dick died in November of 2019, after a long and colorful life. He was 89. He originally spoke of wanting to be skinned, stuffed, and mounted over the bar after his death, but his official last request, as noted in his will, was more easily carried out. He left his daughter with detailed instructions on the harvesting, drying, and preserving of human toes, and bequeathed all ten of his dignified digits to Dawson City's downtown hotel, the current home of his beloved Sour Toe Cocktail. His ashes sit above the bar at the hotel's Sourdough Saloon, in a custom-made ceramic urn designed to resemble a dehydrated human toe, so that he may continue to watch over the Sour Toe Club, quote, for the next thousand years or so, end quote. Now, if you're like me, you can't wait to join the club. But you might be wondering if there's anything else you should know. Well, it's more regulated now than it was back in the 70s, and the rules are a little more strict. These days, the toe must not enter the mouth or be bitten, chewed, tongued, sucked, or, God forbid, swallowed. This is both for the toe's safety and yours as well. On paper, the admittedly stomach-churning drink is quite safe to drink. The toes are all thoroughly dehydrated before their first use, and are stored in a container packed with rock salt to help keep them safe and dry. 
In fact, the dead human flesh isn't really a health concern. It's akin to putting a strip of bacon in a Caesar. No, the health concern comes with all those human mouths. The toes can see a lot of action on a busy night, so they need to be routinely disinfected, and that's where the drink choice comes in. Unfortunately, champagne is off the menu, along with beer, wine, and pop, at least at first. Don't even ask about coffee or soup. To appease the health inspector, the toe must be served in at least one ounce of liquor that's at least 80 proof or 40% alcohol by volume, a potency that is liable to kill anything that might try to hitch a ride from one mouth to another. If you don't drink alcohol, don't worry. While the toe must be served in alcohol, you are allowed to pour that out and carefully transfer the toe to another glass of liquid. YouTuber Tom Scott did it with ginger ale, so it's my hope that, when I go, I can get a sour toe served in a glass of Yukon Jack, then toss it into a glass of champagne, just as Captain Dick originally intended. The normal cost is the price of your drink, plus the $5 toe tax, plus tip, and drinks are served during toe time, usually 9pm to 11pm each night in the summer. Folks who have tried the drink say that the toe is scarcely different from an ice cube. It doesn't have much of a texture or add much of a taste, though the smaller toes have the nasty habit of clinging to the glass and pelting you in the mouth when you tip it back. It's all part of the experience, of course, and the Sour Toe Cocktail Club's most solemn and most memorable rule. You can drink it fast, you can drink it slow, but the lips have got to touch the toe. Is it a touristy gimmick? Yes. Is it gross? Of course. But there's no denying that it's strangely Canadian and unabashedly Northern. It is, in its own weird way, a symbol of the enterprising, outlandish way of thinking that made the Yukon what it is today. And it has become an important part of the territory's culture and its history. In an interview with the CBC, in between downing a glass of alcohol garnished with five freshly cut toes, Captain Dick told reporters, quote, I've created a legend here in the Yukon, end quote. If nothing else, that fact, my friends, is as plain to see as the toe in your glass. That's it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember to hoist a glass of your favorite spirit this Discovery Day and give a toast to the memory of Captain Dick. Toes up. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams, with sound design by Ryan Clark. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Key is our business manager. Jordan Heath-Rawlings is our executive producer. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.